0: But this morning, we will be beginning a new series. Uh, We're gonna be going through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. We'll spend many weeks in Daniel. Daniel is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. Daniel is one of the greatest characters, not only in church history, but in the history of the world. He's a great man of all time. He is a hero of our faith, one who endures for a lifetime in his godliness, in exile and in trial. He is a person resolved in his faith. The sermon next week will deal with resolution in faith and not giving up what you were holding on to. He is a person that is wise, is devout in godliness, humble, patient, diplomatic, fearless, and full of faith and hope, even though that faith and hope is never realized in his lifetime. And so the only way to start in the book of Daniel is to start with some history, because if we just dive right in, you're not going to understand where we are or what's going on, and the richness of the situation comes out of understanding the history of the situation. And when I say history, I mean history, and it's important that you hear me say history and not myth or legend. So many people read the Bible, and they understand it to be myth or legend. And we're going to understand that more and more as we get into the book of Daniel because the book of Daniel is a, is a supernatural book. He is one who speaks about things that had not yet happened. And people that do not believe in the supernatural nature of the Bible reject the authorship of Daniel as the author because they'll say it cannot possibly be that he wrote this book because that means that he would have to understand the future. And so we'll get to that later. But this is the actions of God in real history, God revealing himself progressively over time and glorifying himself through the course of human history. The first verses of the book of Daniel talk about the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. And so to understand this, we go back to 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, the books that outline the history of the people of Israel. And so Jehoiakim was a king of Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel started out as a unified kingdom. We had Saul and David and Solomon, but after Solomon, things fell apart. And the kingdom was broken into two different sections, a northern section and a southern section, and it never came back together. And so, in the course of these events, you had this downward progression, but it's important to back up just a little bit to the father of Jehoiakim, who was Josiah. Josiah is a name that we're familiar with often. Josiah is the last godly king of Judah. He was one that literally, when they went in to renovate the temple a little bit, someone found the written scroll of the Old Testament and what they had the Pentateuch at that point in time. And somebody brought it out and said, I found the word of the Lord. This is similar to to the Reformation time when somebody translated the Bible and said, look at this. This is unbelievable. We should read this again. And so they did. He had a scribe literally read him God's word and he was affected by it in a way that other kings had not. He was grieved to repentance and he looked around at the nation and compared it to what is in the scriptures and realized that they were grievously off course. And so Josiah begins a series of national reforms to try to bring the people away from their ungodliness and back to the way of the Lord. So I want to read for us a little bit of a summary of the life and the reign of Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 23 verses 24 through 27. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest, found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, "'Nor did any like him arise after him. "'Still the Lord did not turn "'from the burning of his great wrath "'by which his anger was kindled against Judah "'because of all the provocations "'with which Manasseh had provoked him. "'And the Lord said, "'I will remove Judah also out of my sight "'as I have removed Israel, "'and I will cast off this city "'that I have chosen, Jerusalem, "'and the house which I said my name shall be there.'" So even though Josiah was a godly man, and because of his godliness, the Lord relents or holds off his judgment for a period of time, but eventually in the reign of Josiah, he is killed in battle by Pharaoh Necho. And after he is killed in battle by Necho, his son, Jehoaz, Jehoiaz, these names are tricky in the Old Testament. I feel so sorry for Christine, who will be signing in the next service. I have no idea how she's going to handle all these names. But Jehoias, his 23-year-old son comes to power, and he is really a governor for Nico. And his reign only lasts for three months, and the only thing that's said about him is that he had an evil heart. What a terrible way of having your life summarized is that you are an evil person, But that's such a tragic thing. It's always a tragic thing for me when you have a godly parent and a godly set of parents and they're followed by ungodly children. And I I just, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. Eliakim was the same. So what happens is Necho enslaves him, takes him off to Egypt and his other brother Eliakim comes to power and is made the governor by Necho to collect tribute from the people and be his puppet ruler there in Judah. But Jehoiakim uh, is, is in power, is in his power under Necho for a while until the, the turn of the sixth century BC. In the turn of the sixth century BC, you have a change in world power. And what happens is Nebuchadnezzar I had come to power and had strengthened his position in Babylon, and his son, Nebuchadnezzar II, begins to go out into all the world and create this massive empire of conquest. And so it is that Nebuchadnezzar II comes into Judah and takes over Judah and takes it away from Nico and brings a group of people into Babylon. In 2 Kings 24.3, it says this overthrowing of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar was of the Lord because the Lord would not pardon the sins of the people. So what he said was going to happen after Josiah does in fact happen, and it begins to unfold progressively. Nebuchadnezzar II was one of the great ancient rulers of the world. Babylon, or modern-day Baghdad, was where his seat of power was. It was one of the most magnificent cities in all of the world. There, he loved building. In the Bible, we have a lot of his military conquest, but in history, what he wanted to be remembered by and what he wrote most about was his building projects and making Babylon magnificent. And so, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world were in Babylon at that point in time. It was called the Hanging Gardens. It was this 400 foot by 400 foot elevated platform, 75 feet off the ground, held up by pillars that had these magnificent gardens and these series of slaves running these wheels to pump water up to it and irrigate it. It was something crazy, something unheard of, something elaborately extravagant in the ancient world. And they're in the middle of Babylon. And He was all about the Babylonian gods. Inside the walls of ancient Babylon, they had 10 significant temples to the various gods that they worshiped. In the center of all that was a giant ziggurat uh, set up to the worship of Marduk, later known as Bel, the god of thunder. And this was Babylon, this was Nebuchadnezzar, and this is the king that goes out from this land into Judah to take them over, to make them his people that they might pay him tribute and then to assimilate them into the ways of Babylon. And it is during this first conquering conquest of ba- uh, where Babylon comes out and Nebuchadnezzar takes over Judah that he brings back a group of people to Babylon. And Daniel is in this first wave. There are two other subsequent waves. There's one under Jehoiachin and then a last one under Zedekiah, where Babylon eventually grinds down Judah to nothing, where all the walls are torn to pieces and the temple is torn down and there's absolutely nothing left of the nation. But Daniel doesn't go out in that wave. He goes out in the first wave. And so there's two narratives happening in the book of Daniel. There's a national narrative, what is happening with this nation for all of its generational ungodliness and wickedness, and then there's a personal narrative of what God is doing in the life of Daniel and each of his friends. There's a macro-narrative and a micro-narrative, the big picture and then the particulars of people's lives, and I really want you to understand and see that the national movement is determined by individual faith. A nation doesn't just move along as something that is just itself. It's, it's not an entity. It's a thing made up of individuals. This country is made up of people like you. Every individual person here makes up each one of your families, and your families make up communities, and communities make up nations. And so what is happening to Judah is happening because of the individual hearts of people turning away from the Lord. And eventually it culminates in national judgment. But one person at a time deciding what they will believe and how they will live before the Lord is what is so important. That you and I cannot hide in the crowd of a nation because God knew Daniel's name and God knows your name and God knows what is happening in your particular life. And though he is working at a national level, it all begins from the particularity of individual hearts. And so Daniel's narrative as one person amongst all this massive national mess is what we focus in on in this book. And we find a Daniel faithfulness to God in the midst of a pagan land. He's taken out in the first wave, which leads us to believe that he was the best of the best. What he does is he scrapes off the cream of the crop, the upper echelon of society, and as we are going to see, takes them in to assimilate them, to make them different in trying to change all the culture. So whatever family he came from or whatever, he, whatever background he had, he was considered to be the most important or one of the most important people to take in and assimilate early. But what we find with Daniel is wholehearted, uncompromising godliness, and that's the part of Daniel that really was brought out to me as a young man. And my mom taught me about him. I was taught about it in Sunday school in the backside of this wall here where the children will be taught next hour. We all learn about the godliness of Daniel. But I'm telling you, the other part of Daniel has jumped off the page for me over the past few years in a way that it, made no, it made, had no significance to me at all when I was younger. The other part of Daniel's life is that he was a lifelong government bureaucrat. Okay? And I'm not joking. He was a servant of kings, of wicked pagan kings, a series of kings over a lifetime. And it was in that context of being a government servant that he was also uncompromising, godly, and wholehearted in his devotion. And that's fascinating, especially for this church. We have so many people in this church that work in some way for the government or in connection with the government, and we struggle constantly as we see our government becoming more and more ungodly. What in the world does it mean? How can we, can we bridge this divide? And I think there is so much to learn from Daniel in the way that he conducts himself for this church and the people of this church, and I look forward to exploring this over time. But he endured. The other part about Daniel's godliness is it was no flash in the pan. He endured over a lifetime. As we progress through this book, we'll find him from a very young man to an old man. He is full of faith, but his faith is never realized. Often we look at his faith and we see how much he believed God and hoped in God for the future, but we take for granted, I think, that he never saw Jerusalem restored. He died still a captive in Babylon. And yet he hoped for the future and believed that the ancient of days that he was given a vision of would one day bring to pass what he said he was going to bring to pass. And he, in fact, did. But we see God working on his behalf. As he stands, he often stands alone, but the Lord God stands with him and gives him favor and wisdom and makes a way for him always. So let's read together from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So I would ask you to stand this morning to honor the Lord as we read his word. Daniel 1, 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ashpenaz... They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, and Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well we've gone through the history and when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes over Judah in the capital city of Jerusalem, the temple which is there, it says he takes in verse 2 some of the vessels out of, some of the sacred things out of their temple to symbolize the fact that he is now controlling or, or taking over and his God is more powerful than the God of the Israelites so he's going to humiliate them and so he loots a portion of the temple And I think it's good and right for us to ask the question, if God is Almighty God, how can his temple, the place where he displays his presence, be taken over by a foreign power? Why doesn't he do something about this? Well, what is happening is exactly what we've been talking about before, that the Lord is in fact giving this nation over to judgment, and it says that. He gives over the king to the king of Nebuchadnezzar. To, the King ne- to King Nebuchadnezzar. We see other places in the Old Testament where people's hearts turn towards the Lord in prayer and the Lord wards off the enemies and, and makes a way for his people and protects them. But at this point in time, we have evil rulers and it has culminated in such a great evil that the Lord God is giving them over to their enemies as judgment. And that he is in fact removing his glory and removing his presence from the people. And we need to understand that that's a part of God's judgment. When God removes his presence and takes away his Holy Spirit, then all we have is the corruption of mankind left over and the immediate infighting and, and roiling and, and, and breaking down of society through the removing of the restraining presence of God's Spirit is what happens here. So the temple has been abandoned by God. His presence is no longer there. It's just an empty building. And they come in and they take some of the things out. And this is what is happening. But one of, the, one of the ways that this is uh, described for us comes from 2 Chronicles. I'm gonna read this for us. 2 Chronicles 36, 11 through 16. And in understanding this timeline, it's important because it brings meaning to what's happening here. That Daniel is taken off and over to Babylon in the first conquest. But what happens is we have these puppet kings that keep going on. And the last puppet king is Zedekiah. Zedekiah is ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. And it's during Zedekiah's reign that we have the the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, but it's a beautiful, wonderful, and important book. And Jeremiah is still calling for the people to repent, but he's telling them, listen, judgment is coming, and you need to be okay with what God is doing here. And Zedekiah hates Jeremiah. The way that he persecutes him is constant in that book. But this it's important for us to realize that Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporaries to one another. Daniel is in Babylon while Jeremiah is in the decaying final stages of the land of Judah. But this is what Jeremiah writes about the attitude that the people ought to have toward what God is doing in removing his presence from them. 2 Chronicles 36, through 16. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, and he stiffened his neck, and he hardened his heart. "'against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel, "'and all the officers of the priests "'and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, "'following all the abominations of the nations, "'and they polluted the house of the Lord "'that he had made holy in Jerusalem. "'The Lord, the God of their fathers, "'sent presently to them by his messengers "'because he had compassion on his people "'and on his dwelling place, "'but they kept mocking the messengers of God.' and despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. It's a sobering passage, but verse 15 is the key. The Lord still has compassion on these people. And what does he do in his compassion? He keeps sending prophets to them. They are hard-hearted, proud, stiff-necked, evil, wayward, But yet he continues to send to them prophet after prophet. And Jeremiah is the man for that time. But when he sends prophets to them to speak to them God's word and to call them back and to remind them of what God is doing, they mock them, they despise them, they scoff at them until at some point the mercy of the Lord comes to an end. And the way it is expressed here is until there is no more remedy. And the only remedy is discipline. And this is what the Lord is doing here. He pulls back his presence and he allows them to be taken over. Yet in this, God is still merciful. For though Daniel is swept away to a foreign land and many others will continue after him into exile and into bondage, they are not taken to destruction but they are taken to the life that Jeremiah calls the people to live in their exile, which is so fascinating. And we need to look at that as well. When we look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses four through seven, he tells the people very clearly the way that they are supposed to live when they're in bondage in Babylon. And the connection I want you to make is this is exactly the type of life that Daniel lives while he is there. And so what does it say? Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 29, verses four through seven. "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, "'to all the exiles who who I have sent into exile "'from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, "'plant gardens and eat their produce. "'Take wives and have sons and daughters. "'Take wives for your sons and give your daughters "'in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. "'Multiply there and do not decrease.'" But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. How interesting is that! So the people being taken by his disciplinary action into a different place, he calls them not to live a cloistered life, not to create compounds and live alone. He tells them not to live a revolutionary plotting life. He doesn't tell them go into exile and, and work on how you're gonna overthrow these people and get back to Judah as fast as possible. He tells them not to live in a, a bitter life of fear or anxiety. But what he calls for them or commands them to do is to live an engaged peaceful, hopeful, and godly life in the midst of ungodly people. That's fascinating. But the heart of the matter is so important because what he is aiming at is the soul of the people. The soul of the people have gone far astray. And the thing that will bring the nation back to itself is a spiritual revival without revival, without a spiritual awakening of these people to understand that they have long since turned away from the God of their fathers and gone after the ways of this world, until they turn back to that, there's no point in restoring them and God will not restore them because their hearts are still hardened. The soul is the central problem. The soul of the nation has gone astray and the soul of the nation is stiff-necked and hard-hearted and evil and depraved. And so until the soul of the nation is changed one person at a time, there will be no restoration of the nation. Unbelief leading to wickedness and violence and moral depravity and idolatry. Restoration of true belief is what the Lord God is aiming after. And when there is a mass restoration of true belief, that's when the nation will be restored. And so that's what Jeremiah is aiming at. Go and live in this land. And instead of focusing on other things, focus on godliness. Focus on living for the Lord where you are in the context that I have given you and love me there and serve me there. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Daniel throughout his life, that where God has placed him, instead of chafing against it, rebelling against it, and constantly trying to make it different, he lives for God in this way, in the place that God has put him. But it goes on in Jeremiah in verses 10 through 14, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. God is merciful. Sometimes we think in the Old Testament, because we see the judgment of God, that God is not merciful, but that's not the case. He is constantly merciful. He disciplines, and then he restores, and then he disciplines, and he restores, and so he is going to restore those people, and he does restore those people. This is in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but there is going to be approximately two generations of discipline. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Many of us have heard those verses before. They're very familiar verses. But the context of those verses matter tremendously. Jeremiah is speaking those words to a people that are getting ready to be disciplined dramatically as a nation for two generations. But they're words of hope for the future. And if you turn your hearts back to me, I will restore you. And there will come a time where though you do not love me now, though you do not call upon me now, you will one day call upon me. And there will be fellowship between us again in the future, but not now. So God is merciful, but he is also disciplining. But until that time, the Lord always sustains a remnant. And part of the remnant that the Lord God sustained for the people is Daniel. And we know that Daniel is known by the people even in exile as a godly man. We'll get to that at some point later. But the people understand that they still have a godly person in power and someone to look to. He is preserved by the Lord. But when we go back to Daniel, we see that verses 5 through 7 are the plan of Nebuchadnezzar to assimilate these royal, nobility, cream-of-the-crop people, when he skims them off the top of Jerusalem and brings them to Babylon, this is his plan for making them Babylonian, and it's a, it's a, it's a masterful plan. His plan is not to enslave them until they relent, because that causes people to bind up and, and fight. Instead, what he does is he brings them into the king's palace. And he gives them all the best food, the food from the king's table, the king's wine, the king's everything. Well, we're so glad to have you in Babylon. And I'm going to give you a little bit of everything that Babylon has. We want you to embrace and enjoy the culture of Babylon. And in fact, we're giving you a scholarship for three years to Babylon U. And you're going to go and you're going to learn all of our language and our culture and our ways and our languages and you're going to learn our religion too, and it's going to be great. And in order to get you started on this, I'm going to claim you by changing your name, and I'm going to give you a Babylonian name so that you understand that you belong here now and you're not going back. Daniel, whose name meant God is my judge, is changed to Belteshazzar, which means wife of Baal, protect the king. It's the the female name of Baal, protect the king. Hananiah, which meant Yahweh is gracious, is changed to Shadrach, the command of Aku. Mishael, who was like God, is changed to Meshach, who is like Aku. Azariah, which meant Yahweh is a helper, is changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. And so what happens here is they are working over a period of years to change the way that these young men think to change their moral code, to change their loyalties. So hopefully at the end of this three years, they will no longer think of themselves as men of Judah, but think of themselves as men of Babylon. And that their loyalties and their thinking and their religion will all be changed as they become Babylonian. And I'll tell you it's a brilliant plan and it's a plan that hasn't changed much in two and a half thousand years. Because at the age of these young men, Our current cultural plan for this, three years of cultural, educational, and religious reprogramming is often called college, where young people are pressed hard in a very secularized environment to throw away their faith, the faith of their forefathers, to leave behind a biblical name that is often given to them and to abandon the truth and to take up the overpowering spirit of the age and to accept a new moral order. So that at the three years of, after three years of significant labor and work on the mind and the soul of a young person, that they come out totally different. And every single one of us have experienced this with certain young people going away and seeing them three years later and they're unrecognizable from who they were when they went in. And this is scary, but this is not new. Because this is the fight for the soul of young people between this world and godliness. It's amazing that Daniel's parents raised him in a way that taught him to be devout. And no matter what they did, Daniel would not give up his faith. And we are seeking to raise young people in this church that will have such a devout desire to follow after the Lord that they will never give up the faith of their forefathers. But this is not a new thing. In Rome, when Paul wrote to the church, he wrote to them about a similar situation because Rome had a strong, powerful spirit of its own age, its own gods, its own ungodly, violent, debauched culture. And it was pressing hard to have people accept that and believe it and live by it. And Paul was doing the same thing I'm telling you this morning, pressing against it, pressing back against it. And what does he write to the Roman church in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two? He says this, and this is where we will close today. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul appeals to the people, I appeal to you, do not be conformed to this world. This world is always striving to change your heart and pressing against you to press it into its mold that you might come out the other side and look just like this world. I want you to see as we go through many weeks of following the life of Daniel, that Daniel empowered by God in his spirit, had an equal and greater resolve to never be conformed to this world. He would never become a man of Babylon. He would always be a man of Judah. He would never follow after Marduk. He would always follow after the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there was nothing, literally nothing, that they could do or tempt him with that would ever cause him to leave these things away. But we see here at the end of Romans 12, it says, by the testing of your faith, these things will be discerned. And we have to see that in the life of Daniel as well. He doesn't follow after this path through ease, it's through testing. It's through great testing that Daniel shows himself true and strong. And so I encourage you to see as we begin in the book of Daniel that the kingdom of Babylon has long since passed away. I had to tell you about it this morning because you've forgotten about it and you didn't know anything about it. It was at one point the greatest thing in all the world and now it's just a one page in the encyclopedia. But the kingdom of God remains and the kingdom of God will endure forever. And so when you choose to follow after Christ Jesus, you are a part of a kingdom that will never end. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I love you and I thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for your work in our hearts. And I pray especially this morning for our young people. I pray for our college students, our teenagers, our graduate students, those that are very much in the thick of being uh, pressed by the world. Those that are in a college setting where everything around them screams that the, the word of God is foolish and old and tired and worn out and backwards. And if you would just come with the spirit of the age and see what we have, and come, be a person of the world, and get rid of this faith of your fathers. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, and you would strengthen our young people, and you would have them see beautiful things of you in your word, and that by your spirit you would convince their souls that the ways of God are right and true and eternal, and they would not give up what is eternal for what is passing in this world. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you and we thank you for your work in our lives and in this church and in this community. And I pray that you would be turning hearts one at a time back to you. One at a time, Lord, that you would bring spiritual awakening in our land to help us see who you are and follow you. That we might not drift into depravity and violence and wickedness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.